I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 542, October 7th, 2023. Welcome back. Today we have our friend Alista East back on the show, and it's part one of her uh, book that's entitled Josette and Friends Cook a Gumbo. Um, and uh, John Fultz, uh, no mean chef himself, says, this beautifully written and illustrated children's book is a brilliant blend of Louisiana's culture and cuisine. Um, and so uh, it reminds me a little of uh, Rock Soup, the old uh, folk tale, if you remember, uh, Stephen. Um, yeah, tell, tell, tell that for the listeners who don't yeah, know uh, that, that old tale, because very, very that, good story. That town and says, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had soup and um Everybody says, oh, you're a beggar. What could you contribute? Well, I'm going to make rock soup. So he throws a rock in the pot and, you know, stirs it and, you know, smells it and says, mm, 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 pretty good, but I think it could use a little salt. And somebody says, oh, I'll bring some salt. Uh, they get some water all nice and salty. And he says, mm, you know, great, but I don't know. What about some meat? And so somebody bring anyway, everybody winds up bringing something, and they all have supper. So it's a parable of the common good. Yes. Um, and uh, this is the uh, parable of the common good uh, in Louisiana. <laughs> everybody makes a um, everybody makes a um, a gumbo. A gumbo, right? They work together to make a gumbo. It's a, a community. It's a community enterprise. And as you know, gumbo has been used to describe Louisiana rather than a melting pot. Um, and, and so this is a, a good metaphor, you know, the, uh, like this is the way we are as a state. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's what I keep saying, what I said again at the, the Louisiana Historical Association uh, back in April that we are, you know, the state is missing a chance to say this. We're the state where American multiculturalism was born, as we know it today. Yeah, one of the early Italian communities in the country, I think the very first Greek community, uh, you know, the the French and Spanish and Africans. I mean, it's pretty amazing what was coming through Louisiana. Alista, we talked to her about before, she's one of the... And they were um, uh, Spanish-speaking people who immigrating here i guess very early on before the yeah yes right before the revolution i want to say and um and i think there i think there's some french in her lineage too so she's very very you know very indicative of a lot of south louisiana so it's a great interview and a great book and so we hope you listen to the interview and buy the book especially and, yeah we should point out it premieres next week so this will be yes. on the 12th That's, now for this week in louisiana history so this week in Louisiana history, on September 30th, 1764, the Abadie uh, acknowledges the receipt of transfer of the colony from the French to the Spanish. So this is the beginning of the Spanish period in Louisiana, and it'll last the 18, what is it, 1802 or something like that? Yeah. Oh. It, it was a generation. And yeah, and a, and a very powerful, you know, very, very powerful influence on the state at that time. Even I apologize. I don't know what's up with my Louisiana, New Orleans history. Kind of get better with that. Um, but uh, go on and tell us about this week in Louisiana. Yeah, my, my screen disappeared. Let me see if I can bring her back up again. Let's see. 
So this week in Louisiana, we are remembering the Steamboat Washington, which arrives in New Orleans on October the 7th, October the 7th, 1816. In, 18, in 1989, the federal government issued a commemorative stamp in honor of the Steamboat Washington. This was a, a piece of art with a, which was a watercolor by Richard Schlecht on October 7, 1816, Washington, built by Henry Miller Shreve. So this uh, piloted the first double-decker steamboat to arrive in New Orleans, and became the, this uh, boat became the model for the classic style of Mississippi River boats: flat bottom, two stories steam-powered paddle wheels mounted on the stern with two smokestacks. First used to carry cargo, it was soon open for passenger transportation. Washington moved at lightning speed compared to the other boats on the rivers, 16 miles per hour upstream and downstream at as much as 25 miles per hour. And, and before the listeners laughed too hard, this was a feat, you know, in the early 19th century. This is two, over 200 years ago now. 25 miles an hour on water feels like a lot now. You know, yes, it feels like you're like, flying. Yeah, it does. And, and, and Shreve does, you know, before we read the rest of this, Shreve pioneered because he also brought the first military supplies to a, to a fighting army in American history by a steamboat. This is 1815, just a year before, he piloted the steamboat down to New Orleans, and it arrived, unfortunately, the day after the Battle of New Orleans. But he's credited with that. He was bringing, you know, guns and ammunition from Philadelphia. When you look at it from the uh, perspective of the people at the time, there were still 10,000 British in a mighty fleet buzzing around in the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, it didn't seem like they were too late to the folks at the time. No, no, absolutely not. So our our kind of uh, historical brief here says that Shreve's cleverly designed Washington had all the features that would soon become soon come to characterize the classic Mississippi Riverboat, the two-story deck, the stern, uh, stern-mounted paddle wheel powered by a high-pressure steam engine, a shallow flat-bottomed hull, and a pilot house framed by the two tall chimneys, perfectly designed for the often shallow western waters, or western rivers like the Mississippi, the Missouri, and the Missouri. The Washington proved itself on its inaugural voyage the following spring. Steaming upriver against the current with full cargo, the Washington reached Louisville in only 25 days, demonstrating that the powerful generation of steamboats could master the often treacherous currents of the mighty western rivers. Soon, the Washington began to offer regular passenger service and cargo between New Orleans and Louisville. This was a big deal because you're opening up the, the, the basically the, the Mississippi River Valley. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's got a very powerful, you know, you talk about this, it's got a very powerful civic kind of impetus as well, besides the transportation and trade. And uh, we'll try to include that picture uh, the he drew for the for the um, for the post office in our uh, show notes. We're going to take a look at the, his uh, his um, recreation of that early steamboat. Now for this week's postcard from Louisiana, and listen to single malt, please, with our old friend Maud Caillou on uh, saxophone. I'm playing at the BMC Bar in Decatur Street in New Orleans.
Don't wait till next time. And now on to interview with Alyssa East. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And we're here today with Alyssa East. Welcome back. Did I get your name right? Sorry, it's Elasta East. Elasta. Okay. Elasta, yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, you've got a, a new project that are you coming? We we had you on a few years ago, uh, but you've got a new project. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. Uh, well, I have a new book coming out, and it's called Josette and Friends Cook a Gumbo, and it's my first children's book, and I'm really excited about it because I've wanted to do this for a very very long time, even before I went off and got a PhD, before I published my Creole book. This was something that I had. Um, a desire to do, and I just couldn't figure out how I wanted to frame it and how I wanted to to write it, but I knew I wanted that information to get out into the hands of our young people. Uh, and so this was a, a way for that to happen, and it all just started coming together at the right time. And what age group is this uh, targeted at? Because, um, you know, there's some wide varieties and uh, stuff for kids. Sure. Um Anywhere from four to ten. It's kind of a wide range, but the younger ones can be read too, and the older ones can read it on their own, probably. Right. And, and does every page have like an illustration? Is that, a, that kind of kids' book? Yes, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture book. I actually worked with an illustrator out of Los Angeles, and uh, we just had an amazing collaborative experience. And her her artwork uh, was just so sweet and just really captured the the feeling, the mood that I wanted to convey in the book. And um, it was just, yes, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely lovely. <laughs> well, excellent. I'm looking forward to uh, getting my own copy of that. We try to get copies whenever possible um, uh, so we can see first. So the, so the book is definitely for not just for little kids, but for big kids too. Correct. Yes. So, and actually, as parents and grandparents and teachers read this um, to the children, it's very educational. So each child um, contributes their own ingredient to the pot, but it's an exploration of Louisiana's culture. I'm a historian. I can't help myself. I'm going to educate. <laughs> so so um, each child comes. There's Josette, and she's a little Cajun girl. There's Andre, Creole boy, Tallulah, she's Homa and Choctaw, and uh, Isabel is Islania from the Canary Islands, and Dirk oh. uh, is German. So they all are, you know, from Louisiana. They're all children that live here, but they all have their own unique heritages, and each one of the gumbo ingredients comes from different places in the world. And so oh. this, this book kind of explores the origins of the different ingredients and how it came to be a part of Louisiana's culinary heritage. That's really cool because sometimes uh, you hear Louisiana people say, well, it's not a melting pot, it's a gumbo. Uh, you know, there's some distinctiveness here, but we all kind of um, become one large culture by uh, not by stamping out each uh, subculture, but by celebrating it, honoring it. Exactly, exactly. And well, I, I keep saying this, that the, we went to the – uh, Louisiana Historical Association annual conference back in April and spoke. Uh, we were kind of the odd ducks because we're literary scholars. 
but we spoke to the historians and we spoke about Jefferson's uh, exchange of letters with the Ursuline uh, nuns there in New Orleans. And in the round of that, I made this comment that I said on the show, I may have said it to you, but I mean, it's, it's this whole thing that Louisiana is missing a chance to say through the lieutenant governor's office uh, and uh, culture, recreation, and tourism, and saying, uh, calling Louisiana the state where American multiculturalism was born. And I mean, it happened right here, uh, you know, within the, the boundaries of the 33rd and the 28th parallels and the Sabine River and the Mississippi River and the Pearl River. Uh, when you look at all the different people groups that were coming into this state from literally all over the world, I mean, this was the first state that really was multicultural in the, in the modern sense. Absolutely. The colonial period was remarkable for its cultural amalgamation. And then you had the French, you had Spanish, you had English, you had American rule. I mean, and it changed hands a couple of times. And the immigrant population, New Orleans was huge um, for immigrant populations. And those that could afford to move on did, and those who couldn't afford to stayed. <laughs> so uh, we've got a little bit of everything here because of that. Even before, uh, you know, the United States became the United States, we were already extremely multicultural. If you look at the history of different things, um, I mean, Bernardo de Galvez's campaign during the War for Independence, the Spanish governor of Louisiana, he had talked all free men of color, Creoles, Cajuns, he, well, Acadians at that time, uh, all these different types of people came together before we were even part of the United States and before the United States was the United States. And those, that, was, that was our militia. That was our military at the time. That right. was our strength, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and then you, you look at the American transfer you know, starting in 1803. I mean, my family is the living embodiment of this. It's not, I mean, it was Anglo, but that's a real terrible descriptor because those Anglos, I mean, it's just referencing their, their speech. The linguistics, because my family were Scots Irish, they were they were uh, Swiss German, they were they were German speaking Swiss, mm -hmm. uh, they were Nor like I was telling you before we went to Mike, they were Norman French way back, uh, they were all these different mixes of people, uh, and that's just here in North Carolina, which is is uh, you know a lot a lot of the time, unfortunately, at least by I don't think by scholars but by the public looked at as being almost a kind of a monoculture, and that's really not a fair or an accurate assessment or an evaluation of the culture up here. It's, it's not, not that at all. Exactly, and many things that are attributed to the Cajun culture have been contributed by other cultures. It's just been adopted or promoted through marketing and tourism and, and so forth as Cajun, but it actually isn't Cajun at all. If you look at Acadian food, you look at the ancestry of Acadian, it's very, very different culinary tradition than the Creole tradition, for example, or the native tradition. So I think the strength in Louisiana is the fact that we have so many different cultures that have been able to provide so many different aspects of their culture. And because we were not colonized by, um, I mean, being colonized by the French and the Spanish, they were pretty much laissez-faire as far as um, culture goes. And they just adopted a lot of different elements. And so in Louisiana, there was already a cultural blending going on from the very, very, very beginning. Look at gumbo itself. The word is an African uh, word. I can't remember um, which country it's from. But anyway, you know, 
Uh, okra is the meaning of gumbo in Africa, and, and it was a key ingredient in gumbo a lot of the time, but, you know, you only have um, okra certain times of the year, and this is before you could store it very well. So uh, they got a Native American uh, powder called a filet that they could substitute for the uh, the okra. And so they've got two continents involved in just this one dish already. You know, the roots yes. of France, you know, and uh, stuff like that. They all use a different thickening agent. And the sassafras is ground up and uses filet. That was the native tradition. You had the rue, which was the European tradition. And you had the okra, which, like you said, the word gumbo is yeah. yeah. for okra. So you have these three continents coming together in a new world, and they're all contributing their ingredients. And whenever you have a good recipe, it doesn't matter where you're from. It's just good recipe. <laughs> so right. you're going to right, right. and you're going to adopt it, and you're going to tweak it to make it your own thing. And so, um, yeah, that's definitely been very representative of Louisiana's culture as a whole, but also it happens in the kitchen as well. It's like a piece of music that, that, you know, somebody wrote the thing originally and it's maybe lost, you know, to put it poetically, lost in the midst of history or whatever, but it's, it's lost as to who actually wrote it. But the lyrics come down to us, and then what happens after the fact is that different, you know, individuals and or bands begin to cover the piece of music, and they add their own little, like you said, their own little touches to it in order to make it their own. Exactly. So this... Story, it sounds a little bit like the old um, rock soup folktale from European countries. Yes. Yes. So the, in the story, the little girl is um, making a, a gumbo with her mom and her friends stopped by it because they smelled the roof cooking and it smelled good, so they all stopped by to check in. And, and as they're adding the ingredients to the pot, each one is telling the story that was passed down to them. So... If, um, like Andre, for example, the little Creole boy, he suggests adding okra to the pot. And he said, my dad tells me that, you know, in Africa they used to grow okra. And kind of he explains how the Africans came to Louisiana and how they brought their okra with them. Right. And so it, and then Tallulah, the little uh, Homo Choctaw girl, she talks about how she likes putting filet in her gumbo. She, her family doesn't put a roux. They just use filet to thicken it. And she grinds the sassafras leaves with her grandmother with a mortar and pestle, the old-fashioned way. Right. And so, and, you know, and her mom uses a blender because that's how they do it now. It's just, <laughs> it's just the, the traditions are, are carried down generation to generation. And so in the story, it's a an educational story, but it's also, you know, a, a story. So you're following these children and they're, they're relaying. And what I really loved about what the illustrator was able to capture was in the historic times that, you know, she's talking about bringing okra from uh, Africa or, uh, you know, the German immigrants commercializing the rice industry, that sort of thing. What she does is she kind of fades some of the illustrations into a sepia tone so that a child could understand that, oh, this is the old days. This is more of a, a black and white picture, and she fades it into the modern with the brilliant colors, so you can kind of see the progression and how these things have been passed down from generation to generation. So visually, it also, I mean, the words 
obviously I'm the author, I wrote it, but the illustrations support the narration so eloquently, I think. Yeah, they mirror, kind of mirror each other. Very much so. It's very much a collaborative effort. And, um, well, it we points work. out you're doing something, too, I think that's really brilliant. You're pointing out the value of oral culture and oral narrative to Louisiana. Uh, that's a big thing, and really across the South, as, as you know. I mean, this is a big thing. Uh, people say, you know, tell me about my family or tell me a story about, you know, Uncle so-and-so or Aunt so-and-so or granddaddy or grandmother so-and-so. And that, that, that is pretty uniform across the South, that whole idea of story being the way that we preserve the family record, we preserve our values, we preserve our culture, we entertain the listeners. I mean, the, the story as, a, as an entity is serving a lot of functions all at once. Absolutely. And a lot of those stories are told around the dinner table or in the kitchen while you're preparing dinner because that's the gathering place of the home. Where, where do people live? They live in their kitchens, you know, and I think that that, that element and that storytelling tradition, I mean, even today you look at the modern society, where are people going to tell their stories? Probably around the coffee pot on the, in a break room. You know, there's some element of eating or drinking that brings people together, and that's when the stories kind of tend to come out. And um, it's a beautiful thing, and I love the oral tradition in Louisiana because it's preserved the, what, excuse me, it's preserved the language in a very unique way. It's preserved a lot of the, the traditions because things were not written down. Not everyone was literate. Not everyone had a chance to go to school and acquire a formal education. There were language barriers. There were socioeconomic barriers. There were racial barriers. And what removes all those barriers is the oral tradition. Right, right. And that's a really, uh, that's a really important element, like you said, throughout the South, and especially even in Louisiana, because of the language that added another layer of complication to a written tradition. There's a whole, there's a whole. I mean, Bruce and I studied this kind of thing in divinity school. Uh, uh, pretty much all of the Hebrew Bible, or what the average person calls the Old Testament, or the Christian Scripture, the New Testament. I mean, the Hebrew Bible, a lot of it, particularly those, you know, the first five books on up, you know, to maybe, I'm trying to think some of the other books that would be like this, and Bruce would know this better than I do, because he, he was actually in biblical studies, I was in church history, but the point is that these books preserve an ancient oral tradition that goes back, you know, centuries, if not millennia, uh, the things were being passed down because there is no written alphabet, so they're passing them down from one generation to the next just by stories like the Iliad and the Odyssey were passed down, you know, or like Beowulf was passed down, for that matter. Yeah, it's not a new thing. As long as there have been people, there have been stories. Absolutely, absolutely. Because you can be working in the fields, you can be stirring a pot, you can be making something with your hand, and you can still tell a story at the same time. And it passes the time, and it makes a hard work day a little more enjoyable. It makes a difficult life experience a little more tolerable. You go to a funeral home, what are people doing? They're telling stories. Absolutely. I mean, you can go anywhere in life and people are telling stories and sharing information in that way. And it's not a formal thing. It's just what happens because humans need to feel connected. And we exactly, connect. yes, yes. We connect in those ways and we relate to each other in those ways. Yeah, they do in their way kind of help build 
or perpetuate communities, right? These stories do that. Uh, that's another one of their functions, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go to the story itself. Um, how did you come on the idea of, of telling it the way you did, like as a children's book? I mean, was there not anything like that out there about, you know, educating children, we'll say, about gumbo? Was that kind of what, you know, kind of a gap in the in the publishing market and, and it kind of hits you as, you know, kind of an insight, like, hey, I could write a story like this, you know, for kids? Or what, what was, was the inspiration? Well, the inspiration was um, years and years ago I, I was doing a series of lectures and I would give a lot of talks and people generally had an idea of what a Cajun was. They were very confused about what a Creole was. <laughs> most people have no idea how to pronounce the word Isleño and have no clue as to where they came from. So <laughs> there were just these gaps and I kept, you know, I would, I would give all these presentations and I just kept noticing these gaps. And so whenever I decided to go back and get a PhD, I knew what I wanted to write for my, uh, that research and that was the Creole book that I produced because I just, there, there wasn't anything like it. There had been things published, but 20 years prior, and so the information just needed to be updated a bit. And so I wanted to present it in a way that was user-friendly and something that the public could connect with and not just yeah. academic audiences. So was your, major, was your major history? Yes. So I have a couple of degrees in history and then also my PhDs in heritage studies. So it's, um, it was a multidisciplinary approach to culture yeah. and heritage. And so I kept waiting for someone to write a series of books for children uh, to talk about Louisiana's cultural heritage. It's so rich. And when I do summer camps with kids or field trips and things like that, I usually ask them just by a show of hands, you know, if they're Cajun or Creole or where they're from. And a lot of times they don't know who they are. Right. And, I, and I think that that is, you know, they're grown-ups' fault <laughs> because we're yeah, yeah. telling them these things, and they don't know, and they're not going to get it in school necessarily, so where can they get it? And I kind of kept waiting and waiting, and um, there's really I, I, my struggle with figuring out how I wanted to frame it. Did I want this to be a nonfiction book with cool little pop-out, you know, did you know boxes and right. things? And I just kept wrestling with it. I was like, I really don't want to do it that way, but I don't know. And then one day, um, I literally was just sitting at my desk, and I was just, it's like, I've got to get this thing done. It's been in my brain pan for, I don't know, 10, 15 years at this point. I've got to do something with this idea, and I think now is the right time. And I just prayed, and I was like, Lord, I need, I just don't know how to, make this happen. I don't know how to frame this. I know what I want to do. I just don't know how to get there. And um, boom, it happened. And I sat there and wrote it out. And I was like, this is exactly what needed to happen. I just struggled with a lot of distractions in my life, a lot of other projects on the front burner. And now this one came to the front burner. And I was really excited to see that happen. And so the book is about, yes, it's about gumbo. But it's really about celebrating the different cultures that make up Louisiana. And it's not all of them, but it highlights some of the key cultures that um, have made a major impact on the area. And I wanted children 
to come from different communities and recognize their value and their contributions to the proverbial gumbo pot of Louisiana's culture. <laughs> and, um, and I also wanted to educate adults. Because a lot of adults don't know yeah, yeah, yeah. different things. And so as adults read this story, hopefully they'll learn something that they didn't know before. And, um, and hopefully for the children, they see themselves in a story form. As far as I know, this has never been done. Right. Like, Janet Dowling has, um, today is Monday, which is Monday, red beans, uh, Friday seafood. And, uh, but, you know, it seems to be uh, aimed at a younger age, and you don't get into the background of these dishes. They're just presented as, you know, okay, this is the dish. Um, but, you know, red beans came from somewhere. <laughs> right. Right. It's and got. It's like I keep saying. It's got a lineage. Like people have yeah. a lineage, or or organisms. Other organisms, animals do, plants do. Well, the the food product has a lineage. It came from someplace, like Bruce said. It's got an ancestry. Absolutely, and I think for me, you know, like I said before, I'm a historian, and I can't help myself. The history is right. going to come out. <laughs> so, um, I, I wanted to to highlight the history of these different ingredients and how they came to Louisiana. Yeah. Because. That's something that not everyone knows, but I think it's important to recognize. And when you think of, especially for outsiders who maybe are not from South Louisiana, are not familiar, I mean, they might know what gumbo is, but I've traveled extensively and I've lived in many different places. And um, I'm always very uh, amazed, I'll just say amazed, at what people think they can put in gumbos. (laughs) You know, and it's like, you know, they, they're told, well, you can put anything in a gumbo. Well, we don't really literally mean that because potatoes and carrots do not go in a gumbo. <laughs> but it's happened before, and, and, and I just smiled. I was like, oh, well, this is actually a soup. This is not a gumbo. There are certain rules for a gumbo, although we are very yeah. fluid with our rules. But for the very first time in my life, I sat down with my mom in the kitchen because I wanted to include a recipe in the book. And I know this is a very bold and daring move because I might start a war because everyone cooks their gumbo slightly differently. But I sat down with my mom and we literally measured. And, you know, we made it. And it's a gumbo is not something that is measured. It is not – you just kind of eyeball it and, you know, you get a feel for it and that's how you make your gumbo but to try to write down a recipe for gumbo for me was personally challenging because it's something I've never done. I just You just have a feel for it, and you can't describe a feel for it in a book. But I, want, I really want this book to be a tool that people can use to learn something about Louisiana, learn something about themselves, and then they can take it into the kitchen and make a gumbo together and have that experience, whether you live in, you know, Maine or Minnesota, doesn't matter. You have a starting point to have a bonding time with your, the children in your life. And yeah. you can share a meal and you can talk about a culture that may be foreign to you. I don't know. But it, it's, a, it's a starting point to get some of those conversations going and to yes. realize that, hey, this is really this is really interesting. This is fun. This is different. I like this. Nice, especially for Louisiana families that haven't been necessarily talking about their heritage. Um, this is a good way. Well, we're, 
which which ingredients are ours? Where did we come from? Right, and this is, you know, and I don't talk about this in the book, but, you know, we don't put potatoes in our gumbo. It's not a thing. (laughs) We'll have potato salad. We might have potato salad on the side, but there's no potatoes in the gumbo. So that's something that, you know, if you're from out of state, you may have heard that, oh, you you can put anything in a gumbo. No, no. That's that's like the other, I mean, the other day, I'm a member of a couple of, uh, well, several different food groups on Facebook, and one of them is one that a lot of people would like, but it's about soups, you know, making soups, uh, sampling different varieties of soups, you know, showing the images of the finished product, et cetera. So somebody made, some guy made a pot of chili, and he said something about putting carrots in it. Look, y'all, I almost had a coronary. I mean, (laughs) North Louisiana culture is a lot like, mostly like South Arkansas, but somewhat like East Texas. And I can tell you, because we're so close, particularly in Texas up here, uh, people in Texas, I mean, North Louisiana's would be appalled. It's like, you do not put carrots in a chili. You know, I, was really, I, was, I was really almost fighting mad, thinking, what the devil, you know? I mean, and, and he had some other foreign, you know, foreign objects, you know, floating around and the stuff. I mean, he had, I can't remember, because celery's not bad in chili, if you really want to season it up, but he had something else floating around in it, and I thought, no, you don't put that in chili. But I, I remember the carrots. You know, these little orange bits floating around, and several other people were like, "What is that?" Well, it's carrots. I'm like, "No, no, no." Yeah. You have broken. You have broken the unwritten rule. This is right. not yeah. acceptable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so yeah, there, there are. I mean, it's like this. There are certain parameters, and then to be a chili, it needs to fall within those parameters. You know, whatever those parameters might be. Correct. So, so three quick things. Uh, one. Uh, you put yourself on very solid ground with your recipe because everybody knows that the best gumbo is your mama's gumbo. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, second, oh, crud, I forgot the other two. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, I can assure you that her recipe is very tasty, but we had never measured it. So we sat there and we bonded and we were discussing, like, okay, wait, how much do you put? No, 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 let's measure that. Wait. Okay, no, let me tweak that. That's not going to come out right. And so, you know, even in that process, again, you know, you have family bonding happening. Right. And, and us working together to collaborate on something that we've never, we've never done before because you don't measure a gumbo, but to write it down. And, you know, and I think what was really kind of a special thing for me was um, I, I, sent a copy off for review um, to John Folt, Chef John Folt. Right, yeah, cool. um, He looked it over, and he actually endorsed the book. There's a statement from him on the back of the book. And, um, and, and, you know, he he approved of the recipe. He looked at it, and he approved of it. I said, well, it's my mom's recipe, like it or not. (laughs) So (laughs) he said, nope, that's a good, solid, traditional (laughs) recipe. I said, well, that's how she makes it, you know. Uh, Um, I'll tell you. Even John Fulton knows the best gumbo is your mom's gumbo, you know. Like, there you go. So, so about recipes, you know, gumbo is a kind of a raid the fridge and the freezer, see what you got. Like, oh, here's some chicken, uh, here's some sausage, but uh, maybe here's some shrimp. <laughs> you can just keep adding until you have enough meat to balance out the, uh, you know, the gumbo. Right, right. And, you know, some people put different things and, and and sometimes and that's where the you can put anything in gumbo concept comes from uh, because oh you know I got I don't have any sausage so I'll just do a chicken and shrimp gumbo or no no generally not 
Right. In some some communities, they don't put a roux, which is, you know, sacrilegious to Cajuns, but, you know, <laughs> they just put filet. It's a filet gumbo, and that's it, and they put shrimp in it. Huh. And there's no roux at all. And so <laughs> You've never heard of that one? <laughs> I've never heard of gumbo without roux. I knew about the uh, with the uh, filet, but I didn't know that you could leave the roux out. So, you yeah. know, you're giving me an idea that that I should share with you because this could be a, a follow up book. You could start a whole uh, be, become kind of a one woman army about writing these books for kids up to educate them about Louisiana cuisine, and a follow up could be. And I'm thinking about my aunt because her family were German Cajuns, you know, those Germans that moved in there to the German coast, and they were from out right immediately west of Baton Rouge, west and I think south of Baton Rouge. And she made fantastic dirty rice. You could do a book on dirty rice mm-hmm. as kind of a follow-up with this. Yeah. Well, the concept for um, this is a series. We would love to see this turn into a series, and it would touch different different cultural elements, not just the culinary yeah. tradition, but also the music, the instrumentation, no. the, just some different. So we have some other um, concepts in the work, and, we, you know, depending on um, the success, shall I say, of this book, uh, we, do, we do envision a series because we want to highlight, um, you know, some of the different cultures as well that are not mentioned in this particular book because it was yeah. not relevant to gumbo, that right. story. But absolutely, there's so much beauty and, and heritage in this area. It's so rich, and a lot of it is just overlooked or misunderstood. Or and Every immigrant story is a little bit different in that some families want to assimilate as quickly as possible and lose the accent and lose the traditions and just, you know, not stick out, if you will. And then other, you know, wait a couple of generations, and then they're like, wait a minute. Some of this stuff was really good. We need to go back and reclaim this. And I would love for... Over the last, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years, local accents seem to be dying out. Like, uh, how many people still do the yacht talk? The young people. Um, And, um, you know, don't get started on um, on, uh, French. You know, that's just... We might bring it back, but it's a long road. So, yeah, uh, it does seem like we're losing our culture to some degree. And and I think that sometimes it's not necessarily losing a culture. It's the process of the culture evolving. Yeah. In order, yeah. In order to preserve it, in order for it to survive, it has to change <clears throat> and adapt. Right. Because if we all live a talk, you know, worked exactly like our ancestors, we would not be who we are today. And so in a modern world, you know, sometimes people are like, well, why would you even write a book? Nobody reads. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, first of all, people do read. Right. <laughs> so, and, you know, you guys coming from the literary uh, tradition, you know that we still have ancient texts that people read because why? It's that significant. It's that yeah. important. That that has been preserved for this long. So the oral tradition... And they're good important. stories. I mean, look at, the, look at the ancient Greek texts like that. <clears throat> this goes right, to, again, more to Bruce's area than mine because I'm more of an 18th century lit person. But if you look at the Iliad and the Odyssey, those, those are great stories. I mean, there's a lot of high adventure. 
you know, a lot of globe trotting, as people say, going on. You've got monsters, you know, and these other, you know, larger than life, uh, you know, critters, and, and the heroes themselves are larger, or protagonists are larger than life too. Going on, you've got uh, characters of great nobility as, as well as great evil uh, who are interacting in their story. So they're, they're great narratives. You know, they're just very entertaining. They're timeless. They're timeless, really. I mean, they transcend time and place because the stories connect people. Because who doesn't like a good adventure? Who doesn't like to see a hero overcoming incredible odds? You know, who doesn't like an element of mystery? I mean, all these things are universal. You can see the uh, evolution along with the preservation and all those movies that make the uh, Viking gods, um, you know, aliens from another planet. (laughs) And so they're they're putting them in a new context. But, yeah, the stories are kind of the same. You know, the stuff that uh, they just, uh, you know, make it meet the new, uh, you know, the thing that people latch on to today, which is, no, we don't believe in the gods so much, but yeah, we believe in aliens. Right. Exactly. And I think that's just appealing to your audience, and that is that is part of what the evolution of, of culture, you know, how that happens. Because, you know, 100 years ago, if you printed a newspaper in French, that would have been in high demand. And today, if you print a, a newspaper in French, first of all, how many people still get the newspaper delivered to their door? compared to 100 years ago. And then if it was in another language, how many people would be reading in French as opposed to what they were reading in 100 years ago? The educated, you know, the people who could actually read. So it has to adapt and change. I remember when I was a kid, I'm a total nerd, I would read the World Book Encyclopedia for fun. Oh, me too. Oh, I did too. (laughs) I did too. I mean, now you might find the World Book Encyclopedia set at a garage sale or something for like two bucks, but everyone Googles in five seconds or less, and you have way more information at your disposal. But the thing is, people are still, there's still a thirst for information. So whether you sat on your couch and flipped through the World Book Encyclopedia and read those articles, or you sit on your couch and, you know, scroll through, Wikipedia, which is not quite the same. <laughs> but well, and Wikipedia, people are the same, whether the technology or the, like the way it gets presented and absorbed might change, but people are they're the same. But the way we do Wikipedia is we just kind of jump down this one story, you know, follow the, follow the link from Google, and it's like a silo, and it's kind of separate from all the other Wikipedia articles, whereas... You grab the B volume off of the, uh, of the World Book Encyclopedia off the shelf, and you just start flipping pages, and, you know, uh, falls here, but uh, so is um, or bats, you know, like the kinds of fly. So, yeah, it, uh, it was a way of um, getting knowledge that we really don't have today just like that anymore. Right. I mean, and I, I can't tell you how much I learned just sitting there reading the encyclopedia. And I loved it. I mean, like I said, I was a nerd, but I think <laughs> I'm not the only one. Right. And, you know. And it probably showed up with you early because I remember as a kid in Baton Rouge, I was, and I still am, I'm an adult with, you know, pretty serious ADHD, but one of my teachers, back, this is back, you know, in the 80s and so forth and back, um, the teachers did not do much with kids with ADHD. They just didn't. 
And one of my teachers, who I've actually gotten reconnected with on Facebook, of all things, she somehow had the idea to have me read aloud. You know, we would have kids read aloud in class, and it would be like a round robin. You know, the first person on the row might read, say, three or four sentences, and they would jump to the next, to the next, to the next. And then it would cycle back to the original reader. And for some reason, I don't know why this was, she chose me to read, start off, you know, the chain that day reading. And I guess she realized I had some facility with reading. And, I, I mean, I'd stumble like kids do, but I read with some fluidity. I had some real ease of reading. And, and, and she was unaware of the fact that at home we told stories. That was a big thing up here in North Louisiana. People told stories about their families. They told stories about the you know, days, you know, days gone by, so to speak, back at the beginning of the 20th century, and specifically with my parents who grew up in the Depression. And so for some reason that clicked with me. And little knowing that eventually my, you know, areas that I would study would be like history, religion, and literature, all three. Mm-hmm. And all of those are based in story. Every one of those is based in story of some sort. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, and, and I gravitated towards it. You know, I was obsessed with story. And, I, and we know from biology this seems to be a, <clears throat> actually a neurological need that human beings have to have story. Because stories help us get, you know, draw meaning from the world around us. As you said, they help connect us with our neighbors. They reveal things about ourselves and our own, our own identities. So again, stories are very valuable, if not essential, uh, to human flourishing. Yes, and I, I know when I was little, my punishment was to put the book down and go outside and play. <laughs> oh, you're such a bad kid. <laughs> I was a horrible, horrible child, you know. But mom would tell me, and I love, and I love playing outside, but I can just, I remember reading The Little House on the Prairie series, and it was The Long Winter, and that book, it was just a long winter. And I remember being here in South Louisiana, and it's hot. And <laughs> I, was, I was cold reading that book. I was so immersed in the, the experience there. And every chapter of that book, it just kept getting colder and colder and colder. And uh, I remember literally feeling cold, and it was definitely not cold. And uh, for the longest time, my mom thought, she's like, I wonder if she's even ignoring me, because she would call my name, ask me to go do something, and I would not respond. And one day she said, yeah, Elisa, do you want some ice cream? And I didn't respond. And she knew, like, she's really lost in those books. <laughs> I just, I, I didn't hear. I was totally in, in, engrossed in what I was reading. And I would love for every child to have that experience where you get lost in another world for even a, just a short time and you learn something that maybe you didn't know before and you just, it, it's just, I don't know, I think reading is such a, it's such a privilege. Not everyone has that opportunity. But for me, it's just opened my mind to so many things and being able to travel and having read so much as a child and as an adult, I don't know, it just it opens your mind and it, you see the world in a way that you may not have seen it otherwise if you never had that experience. Right. It opens you up to the fact that not everybody lives just like you and that's okay. Right. Exactly. I mean, that, that's and, what an anthropologist would tell you, as you know. That's, I mean, we, we have, particularly here in the United States, but this is really kind of a Western problem, this idea that we're sort of the pinnacle or the apex of human culture and everybody should live and be in the world like we should live and be in the world. That's just nonsense. Yeah, I remember talking to a guy who traveled. He was from the States, but he traveled overseas for the first time. 
And he said, and the only time. He's never going back. It was so, such a culture shock. And I said, well, my goodness, where did you go? And he said, I mean, they didn't even use washcloths. I was like, okay, where did you go? He's like, Ireland. I'm like, Ireland? <laughs> I'm like, okay, Europeans in general don't use washcloths like we do, but my gosh, the language was a barrier and the food was foreign and you just couldn't handle it. I was like, it's Ireland. It's not that far you know, that's not that different from American, you know, food. And, and this guy was right. from Missouri. And I'm like, you have a huge Scotch-Irish influence here. Like, how? What? I was so confused. But that, for him, was culture shock, and he has no interest and desire in going anywhere else in his life. And I just thought, wow, what a missed opportunity to just, you know, I guess he expected to have everything at home in a different location. I'm not sure what the expectation was, but... Um, I don't know. I was I was raised to go out, explore the world, learn, adopt things that you like, you know, adapt things that you, you know, it, I don't know. I just think for people who have the opportunity, and it's not for everyone, reading's not for everyone, travel's not for everyone, but for me, it's my drug of choice. Well, I think, too, the more people that get tuned into travel and reading and turned on to it, I think the world becomes a better place because we've got a whole contingent of society today that fears, you know, reading. It's not We talk about people that are anti-science. There's a bigger umbrella under which that falls. They're anti-intellectual, and that goes a lot of times with people that are fearful of other cultures, right? They're fearful mm-hmm. of other cultures. They're fearful of other people. I mean, I've said that in my classes before in teaching a tech writing class of all things. This is, you know, one of the things that Bruce and I teach and there were sections in there in our book, and this is the intro book for the, it's mostly a sophomore junior course uh, at Tech and also at Grambling. And there's a section in there on, on devising technical texts that, uh, that take multiculturalism and diverse readers, diverse audiences into account. And I have people roll their eyes and I say to the class, I say, don't look at this with suspicion or with skepticism. I said, people have been engaging in multicultural activities, and there's been multiculturalism ever since there's been a, a species that's human. I mean, this is right. an ancient, you know, an ancient, if not a, you know, uh, again, a, 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 you know, prehistoric kind of a thing. As, as long as different kinds of people groups begin to interact and intermingle, that's multiculturalism. This is just the term we, you know, we've attached to it. As right. It's called sophisticated it's, moderns, you know. Yeah, it's not a new concept. No, absolutely not. At all. The term Creole is not a new concept. I mean, it's the blending of cultures. It's been around forever. It's just it's, it comes with different names and different you know, labels and different periods and different geographic locations. But I, as a historian, I tell people all the time, I know that, that people like to say that, um, you know, history, if you don't know your history, then you're doomed to repeat it. And I'm not really a pessimist, but I will say history has proven that people will repeat everything, good, bad, and ugly. So it's just a matter of time and place and who's on top of the hill at that particular moment. Because the human experience is very, I mean, it's so similar, really. We're way more similar than we are different. Was it William Faulkner has said uh, the past is never dead. It's not even past, you know, that seems to be a thesis of a good historian, you know, recognizes that uh, whatever we're doing and looking at the past, um, something like that going on now, just to look around. Yeah, it, it doesn't really change because human 
humans are, I mean, they're the same. They have the same basic needs, most have the same basic desires, and the same basic pitfalls. And as you, when you look back on history, but I tell people, you know, I'm not a pessimist, but realistically speaking, um, you have your, your victors and you have your losers. You have you know, the ones who are on top for a while and come down. I mean, it, it's just a cycle. It's really cyclical. Right. So, you know, yes, I think people should know their history, and yes, I think people, I mean, obviously, I think people should understand, uh, have an understanding of their heritage and where they came from. And, and But I always tell people, you have zero control over what has come before you. Right. You cannot, you cannot control who your ancestors were, were so you can't have greater or lesser bragging rights. You can't be more than you are or less than you are because of your ancestry because that you have no control over. The only thing you can control is you and the future. So how you interact with people, how you you know conduct yourself in society, and how you pass along certain values to the next generation is really the only thing that you can control. So you should, I think, you know, I've had people tell me all the time, well, you know, I say, well, what's your heritage? Oh, I'm just white. Like, what does uh-huh. just white mean? Right. Like, what are you? And they're like, well, I mean, I don't know. Like, I guess, like, Norwegian. I say, well, Norwegian is very different from Scotch-Irish. Exactly. Very different from yeah, French. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's diversity everywhere, but sometimes people don't recognize it. Yeah, and the nomenclature, the terminology, oftentimes, again, does not capture that, right? It's really... You know, I, I've, have you seen this map? I'm sure you have, where it's a, a map of the, is it the different cultures, like 12 cultures or something in the United States? And it's really simplistic because it acts as though one culture stops at, you know, at, at a certain, almost like a dividing line, and then another culture starts. And that's just, that's just not the way life is, frankly. It's really it's misleading. Not. Yeah, to the, to the really naive reader or audience, that, that's really misleading, quite frankly. It is. It's just like looking at Europe and looking at the the um, the national boundaries. You look at Africa. Oh my gosh, the way Africa got carved up and all these culture groups just got stuck into random, you know, behind random boundary lines. Right. That that's not a reflection of what the culture is at all. Hence, a lot of conflict over time. Right. <laughs> because wait a minute, why would we? You look at what happened with the reservation system here. Just carve out certain plots of land, put people on it, and say, this is where you are now. And not necessarily culturally connected creates conflict. It almost, it really kind of, in a way, kind of ensures conflict, right? I mean, you, you, you look at what happened, and I'm thinking of just one part of the world, but what happened before any of us were born uh, in the early days of the Cold War, I think in the late 40s, and you get all the conflict in, in India and the, with these nations or these people groups, I should say, these ethnicities that end up becoming Pakistan. And there's all kinds of conflict in that part of the world, and still is, by the way, where you have people at each other's throats, uh, you know, and you've got the threat of a nuclear war uh, going on. And, again, these are ancient conflicts. They go back millennia in a lot of cases. Right, because they're, they're fabricated. They're constructed barriers yeah. and boundaries that are not, they're not, um, they're not real. It's just lines on a map that separate and divide or unite or forcibly connect people to each other that may not otherwise feel that connection. 
and there's usually someone or some entity that profits from those kinds of conflicts too. It could be Always. arms manufacturers, it could be the wealthy. <laughs> but again, somebody's profiting from the conflict, quite frankly. You know, they're exactly. they're they're making money but also they're they're retaining power at the expense of the people. Exactly, and people don't always recognize that for what it is. And um, those dividing forces are, can be very, very strong and can last for generations, uh, sometimes centuries, sometimes millennia. I mean, oh, yeah. you look at the Middle East. I mean, how long has conflict in the Middle East been happening? I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's a global thing. It's a human experience, and that's why I say, you know, history, whether or not you learn from it, it will repeat itself. Because... <laughs> Yeah, one of the the things that used to totally bug me about Bobby Jindal is, um, you know, he had spent basically his whole life in Louisiana, um, um, and he knew, like, he kept trying, there was this Republican meme, and I guess it's still a thing with him, you know, know, just be American, like you said, just white, but even beyond that, just be American, speak English, do what Americans do. Of course, um, uh, every time you would come out and try to get rid of the hyphen, well, that's what makes Louisiana special is all these uh, subcultures that we have. All the hyphens. Yeah, the first time he gets on uh, national TV, he mangles some French. Well, what's that about, buddy? <laughs> um, so, yeah, he didn't recognize the, you know, what's the, what's the state really? Well, we have 41 million visitors come here every year that we don't have COVID or a uh, horrible, you know, hurricane to shut things down. Um, and they don't come here to see the McDonald's. They don't come here to see the Burger King. They, they come for the local cultures, plural. Yeah. They want something different. They want to have an experience. And Louisiana has always been that foreign destination that you don't need a passport for. The food is different. The language is different. Yes. The culture is different. And yet you have the convenience of never leaving the United States. So people come down here every year with certain expectations. And they want to see the exotic, the different, the unusual. Because that's not what you have in Minnesota. You know, it's, it's different. Now, and when I travel, I want to experience that place. I want to experience what makes that place that place. Unique, right. Exactly. That's why people, most people travel, because they want to experience something that they may not get at home. It's that wanderlust. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people, it's almost like a thirst that can never be quenched, and they, they go hit the road to see these new places, whatever those new places are. Uh, but, but in seeing the new places, uh, eating the foods, you know, soaking in the local sites, they come in, it's inevitable, unless if they're hermits. They come into contact with the locals, and they learn how those people live. And hopefully they come away themselves better people because they realize, again, that their way of living is not the only way. That's okay. Right. And I think for so many people, they, they do want that kind of experience, and they do have that sort of expectation when they travel. And when they go home, what do they want? They want to tell stories to their friends and their neighbors and their coworkers about where they went and what they did. And come back to the stories. They want a good story, so they want to go to a place that's going to be interesting. You don't want to go to something exactly like what you already have and know because 
That's not a good story. That's familiar. Yeah, there's a certain uh, kind of a literary trope, in fact, that, you know, Louisiana, and you kind of alluded to it a second ago, that Louisiana is kind of the American exotic, in a sense. Oh, absolutely. I Every time I travel and go places and I tell people I'm from Louisiana, I mean, they, no offense to North Louisiana, but you know you're South Arkansas. So when when you go places like, oh, where are you from? Are you from New Orleans? No, I'm from Acadiana. I'm from Lafayette. Oh, okay, well, where's that? But they associate, you know, things with New Orleans. They associate exactly. South Louisiana because that's what they're familiar with. That's what's different. You know, North Louisiana is very different from South Louisiana. And when people talk about Louisiana in general terms when they're from out of state, most, right. people, most people don't plan a family vacation to Shreveport. No. You know, and, it's uh, a thing. <laughs> I, I, I went on a... Uh, um, Straight car ride all the way from the beginning, or the, where Charles Avenue uh, ends near the uh, river, and just rode it all the way in and all the way about. Spent about a quarter of it trying to explain to a tourist North Louisiana. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> uh, poor guy. It was like he had run into an ancient mariner who had to tell him his story. He couldn't let him pass, so yeah. Uh, if you're out there listening, uh, whoever I was talking to, I apologize. Yeah, like I said, no offense to North Louisiana, but if you're there, you would understand that you're, you and South Arkansas have way more in common than you and South Louisiana. It's just, it is what it is, and it's not a problem, but it's just, it is what it is. The French did not settle that area. The culture is not as, you know, for lack of a better term, exotic. So It's more recognizable again, but it's, but even then, I mean, you get, and particularly from the 19th century, we'll say the mid and late 19th century on, you get a lot of non-European groups settling up here, non-African groups settling up here. You get, you know, there's a, uh, in fact, my sister and brother's uh, uncle, my biological uncle, is Arab. Well, he's deceased now, but he's Arabic. And he mm-hmm. comes out of the old North Louisiana Arabic community. Well, you had a lot of them traveling around up here. He was Lebanese. <clears throat> and you get a lot of them settling up here. And they're similar to the Lebanese, I think, that settled around the Lafayette area. They're different from the modern Arabs that settled in Louisiana, where most of them are, are Muslim. The ones that settled right. up here are mostly Catholic. Right. The, you the also Lebanese get, uh, they were right. Jewish merchants that are really originally peddlers that would settle around here. Uh, you get, there was some other small community, too, that, that settled, I think, over around Shreveport now. Oh, Italians. And so Shreveport is actually somewhat diverse, and people think North Louisiana, well, it's not diverse. No, there's an Italian community in Shreveport, as well as a Creole community in Shreveport, mostly from Natchitoches that moved up there for jobs. Sure. Um, so, yeah, so there's some diversity, but you have to know where to look, and you have to know who to, you know, kind of enlist as your guide, so to speak, to find those communities. Yeah, well, large in, largely in part to the tourism industry that capitalizes on Cajun culture. Um, <laughs> and promotes Louisiana as a Cajun destination. And certain parishes are considered the most Cajun place on earth, you know, that sort of thing. That's what kind of um, overwhelms the rest of the cultures that are here. And that's that's part of why I wanted to write um, this book for children. And, you know, I would love to see this turn into a series because I want to highlight some of the other cultures that are here that don't get as much credit or as much recognition, as much publicity, 
but are extremely significant and important to Louisiana's culture as a whole. Yeah, but don't, two don't things think that people, not life. Yeah, the, the, um, two things people um, outside of Louisiana know about are New Orleans and Cajuns. A lot of times they think it's the same. <laughs> Oh, yes. You know, that's the Vegas notion. Oh, they do know about Louisiana. They can find it on a map. They know where the boot, right? And um, do that with Iowa. <laughs> uh, they know Louisiana stands for something. Correct. They associate it with the French culture, the French heritage. Yeah. Which is awesome. I mean, that is all part of the story, and that should not be downplayed. Uh, but, but of course, the is not the only story. Yeah, the Spanish were in charge for as long as the French. You know, the more I've studied that period, the more I appreciate the accomplishments. We had several good governors and uh, had to rebuild after the fire, went into uh, battle with the British in the... Um, yeah, kick the British off the Gulf Coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, that, was, that was a big thing with us when I was a kid because I grew up in Baton Rouge, even though my family's from up here. And that was drilled into us in Louisiana history in eighth grade that uh, Louisiana was, you know, governed by the Spanish for a while. Of course, then they would harp on Governor Galvez. Uh, who you know, they didn't, mind, they didn't mind a few regulations, like uh, the Vucare, which we call the French court. They were more Spanish than French because most of the French mm. stuff was burned. And, uh, the governor, was Miro? I think it was Miro. Yeah. 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 You know, okay. When you rebuild, these are the specifications, you know, firewalls and yeah, uh, shingles that were, like, I don't know, did they use, um, like, pottery shingles? Anyway, the, the design was supposed to keep um, melons from burning again, and it happened. <laughs> um, right. Not, not the whole city. Right. And the thing with the Spanish architecture, um, you know, the wrought iron work and things like that. That was all Spanish. But when you look, when you walk down the street in, in the old quarter, you know, the street's not much to look at necessarily, but when you enter those wrought iron gates and you go into these patios, you have these beautiful courtyards with fountains. Oh, yeah. That doesn't even come from Spain. That comes from the, the Moorish or the Muslim occupation of Spain from 711 to 1492 because that is Arabic. Right. Uh -huh. Arab influence where you have, um, they have a, an expression, they say, um, el hombre en la plaza y la mujer en la casa. The man in the, in the street, in the plaza, and the woman at home. So you create oh, right, right. this home environment where your women are, are somewhat secluded, you know, depending on how strict the, the culture is in that area. But you have these beautiful, lush courtyards, and the whole family life happens inside. And But from the street, it's nothing remarkable. Right, right, right. That came into Spain, and then Spain exported it to the New World, and you see that influence in New Orleans, and yet people think New Orleans is Cajun, which is absolutely not Cajun, and then yeah. it just gets French, and it's like, no, actually this is all Spanish, and it dates back even further to the Moorish occupation of Spain. So, I mean, that's the thing that I love about, you know, uncovering these stories, because when you, when you understand that there's such a lineage, there's such a heritage attached to it, you have such an appreciation for how interconnected all of our worlds are. No one right, yeah. is looking for an Arab influence in the French Quarter. Right, you know, no. Food. It's like that's not on anyone's radar. And yet, that's a story that, that 
connects people in a way that no one would ever think of. We're going to break in here and finish our interview with Alyssa next week. She always has so much interesting to say and um, so important, uh, you know, for the cultural um, transmission in South Louisiana, you know, with all of our studies. I think this uh, new venture into our children's books is going to be an excellent uh, new avenue for her talent. Absolutely. You know, we, we miss sight of the fact too often that children's books, we talk about them being, you know, that's, you and I talk about this teaching rhetoric. The primary or original audience for the children's book is a kid, you know, the child. But adults can read a lot of these books and, and enjoy them greatly and profit from them greatly because they're very educational. Oftentimes the stories are really powerful and heartwarming. So it's something that I would say that, you know, pick it up for your kids, but then you read it yourself because it will be a fine book. I will tell you, as the father three sons, um, it's just excruciating to have to read the same bad book over and over, almost as bad as having to watch the same bad movie over and over. But when there's a good one, like Toy Story, I could watch that all day long. And um, Same thing with a good children's book. A good children's book is a good book. You know, and if if it's um, you know has depth and um, cultural meaning, um, uh, then there's a lot for the adult, not just to only learn, but also to kind of become part of that culture to feel like, oh yeah, this is this is part of who I am. Exactly. Uh, yeah. If you look at the cover, you know, we were for the listeners, we were looking at the cover of her book before we began to record uh, this evening, and it's got a great cover. You know, you got a bunch of kids, a group of, I think, five or six kids, and they're all, there's one girl at the center and, and some little boys and little girls surrounding her, and the little girl at the center is holding a, a bowl of gumbo. Yeah. And so, and she's just, she's just that, presumably. And Again, it's a great cover because it looks like Louisiana. I mean, it looks like many of the ethnicities represented in the state. Again, you can uh, click through to our uh, blog where we post our, you know, the, the hosting area for our podcast. We'll put a, a picture of it in our show notes for you, a link to where they can, where you can buy the book. Yeah, and there's, if you're in at least this area uh, in South Louisiana, she will be, as we said, the book is premiering on the 12th, so it's next week. But there will be a, a big kind of a book party. And actually, she's given us an idea for maybe a premiere for our book when we get our play out, hopefully into early next year. Uh, but she is hosting a book party, so if you can make the book party, do, do try to attend that. This is going to be a big event, you know, for Elisa, but also for the culture of the state. So, so try to attend that if you can. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank Elisa for uh, joining us this week and talking with us about another good Louisiana food. Again, do try to make her a event if you can, and do pick up a copy of the book, uh, you know, for a little one in your life, for yourself, or for your library, because this will be a great book. So again, thanks, Elisa, for joining us. We also want to thank all of you for listening in, and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.